Hey, it's Jess, and welcome to The Heart Strong, a podcast where we explore navigating the challenges in our lives. It's my personal mission to guide you towards your greatest potential. So come along with me as we explore living with courage, or as I put it, living heart strong. Welcome to The Heart Strong Podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Carol Demas who is the founder and president of Educational Advocacy Consulting. Carol is an Illinois State Certified Teacher in Elementary Education and Special Education K-12. She's also a Reading Specialist and Learning Behavioral Specialist. She holds a Bachelor's Degree in Special Education and a Master's of Science in Special Education. Educational Advocacy and Consulting is a consulting firm dedicated to assisting families whose children are in need of identification, support, and assistance within their school districts. She has offices in Illinois and Washington, D.C., and I am really looking forward to the conversation today. Before I welcome Carol, I want to let you know that I know Carol personally because she has been my family's advocate for my son Bodie and the public school system. And while we're not going to get into those juicy details... We're going to talk about the needs of children in the public school system, your rights as parents, and I hope that maybe even some, you know, educators will be listening today and we can talk about how we can continue to improve and work more together for the benefit of our students and families. So welcome to the podcast, Carol. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm so pleased to be here. Yes. So I thought we would get started um, with a burning question that people might have, which is, why did you start EAC and how did you get involved in, in advocacy? Well, that is a great question. Um, so I started my career as a special education teacher, kind of a pioneer in that I had the first special education class in this district in, in a rather underserved community. And so along with educating the children, I had to do a lot of educating with um, the other staff members, as well as the other students. Um, it was a great experience, and I found that passion um, to kind of reach out more to not just the students I was working with, but what could I do on a bigger level, and it kind of started my journey, um, and I would ask questions of children I'd be working with, and find out that the families really weren't aware of their rights. So that led me to continue on. Reading has always been a passion. So becoming a reading specialist. But again, when I was working in a clinic setting and working with children with reading disabilities, and I'd say to the family, well, what does her IEP say? And they'd say, what's an IEP? And then I knew there was a lack of understanding and knowledge and information So I went back and I studied special ed with that focus on special education law and advocacy and uh, started my business. And here you are. And you must be (laughs) entrepreneurial because you've built quite a business. Thank you. Thank you. And the Washington, D.C. connection, if I might add it, it's kind of interesting. I, um, I have a lot of family in that area and a friend of a family member was really struggling. And my brother happened to mention, you know, oh, you should talk to my sister. And and he said, give me your number. And then all <laughs> of a sudden, I happened to um, advocate for that individual. And that individual happened to be a, a member of Congress and oh, wow. told a lot of other people. And it started me 
on the journey toward uh, working also in the Washington, D.C. area. So. Wow. That's so cool. I love that. So I thought thinking about this conversation, I kind of see it in three parts because I think there's going to be people listening who are very educated on the IEP process and on the laws that govern, but there's going to be a lot of people who who aren't. And so I know when I started this process with you, I mean, the reason we hired you is because even though my husband's an attorney and I'm an educated person, like we didn't know our rights. We didn't understand the process. It's very confusing. And so yeah. I thought we would start talking about just simply some of the laws and ideas that govern special education. And then we talk about like the landscape of education today, kind of what we're seeing. Just I know it's a big topic, but just some trends. And then I want to talk about some specifics about how families can best advocate for their kiddos, because that's the question that they're. And on that topic, I have to give a quick shout out to a mom named Christina Peace, who has gone through a lot with her son and sent me so many great questions and ideas through my DM on oh, Instagram. Good. So I just wanted to thank Christina publicly because she's just an awesome mom and uh, she c- contributed to the conversation today. So fantastic. So let's start with the law. And can you tell people what IDEA is, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Act? Absolutely. So when we think of children with, uh, and I'm talking about children from birth to 22, when we think about children with learning differences, severe medical needs, disabilities, et cetera, we have two major protections. One is the law of IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which states basically that every child, regardless of their differences or disabilities, are entitled to a free, appropriate public education. Now, that word appropriate, it's tested in the courts every day, appropriate. What is appropriate? It's obviously can be a vague term, but every child is entitled to that. And then added to that is within the least restrictive environment. But they go together because that least restrictive environment can, it was meant to protect families so that children aren't like years and years ago. If your child had special needs, they were put into a classroom in the basement and that was it. So we know that children have a right to be educated in their home school um, with their typical peers if it's appropriate. So sometimes if we're at, advocating for a child to go to a special therapeutic school because it needs for me and for the family that argument of LRE is can be used actually against us oh no but then they're not the least restricted always remember they go together free appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment so that is the obligation of idea that law and with that comes all the funding which is funneled down from the federal government to the schools to provide direct specialized instruction that's the other piece under idea not only do we identify and say this child's eligible but there is an obligation to provide direct specialized instruction now The other law that protects our children with differences or disabilities is the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. What that provides is that we have access. So there can be a situation which a child does not necessarily need specialized instruction. Let's just say a child who has type 1 diabetes. But they require certain accommodations 
to be made so they can access the environment. So they may not need special education under IDEA, but they may definitely need a plan, which in the school setting, we call a Section 504 plan. And many Mm -hmm. of your listeners probably have heard of that. Those are the two main ways that we support all children. Now, when they have an IEP, those accommodations for access are included. But again, for those that don't need specialized instruction, we have that Section 504 plan under ADA. So that's kind of the Reader's Digest version of the two laws. Of the two laws. So can you give us an an example, just if somebody's listening, of what is like, I guess, a scenario of free and appropriate public education kind of in conjunction with least restrictive environment? Like, what would be a scenario to help people understand what that looks like? Perfect. I absolutely can. So an example from an actual case that I'm dealing with now is a uh, student who has some significant needs in terms of that student's ability to access material, academic material, and retain it due to their cognitive profile. That child has been placed in an environment where all day, except for PE and lunch, that child is in a special education classroom. So even though they're in a public school with other typical peers, they really don't have any meaningful inclusion. So I have been fighting to ensure. Now, you know, the first line of defense from the school district was, well, that child can't um, access third grade math. Well, they can be in the classroom during perhaps science and help with those experiments and we can modify the curriculum. So that piece of inclusion was something that was so important to provide that child a free appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. Because being in the least restrictive environment, you that doesn't mean the building you're in. You could be in a building with 800 other typical peers, but your child could be in the most restrictive because all day long, they're in a classroom with four other children with disabilities. That's mm-hmm. That's how we determine that restrictive uh, LRE. So I have been fighting to ensure and to increase this child's time with typical peers for meaningful inclusion. And there are wonderful inclusion specialists across the country that make this a focus. And I often collaborate and reach out to those individuals. This is a very important piece for me. On the other end of the LRE, I have a case recently that I have gone in to advocate for this child to be placed in a private therapeutic setting. Child has not made progress in the public school setting, even in the most restrictive within the public school. So at this point, we know the intensity embedding of services for this child dictates that their least restrictive environment is a private therapeutic day where they can get the supports they require. And with that, we make arrangements for that child who happens to play an instrument and be very good at it to participate in band in their public school. 
we can make sure we still give them. But again, those are two examples. One where I'm taking them from an environment that the school considers less restrictive into more restrictive and one going in the opposite direction. Mm. It all has to align with what's appropriate for that child. What are their needs? And then, and typically, I guess, you know, a question that just comes up is how is that typically received by a school district when you feel like you need to move a child out of a public school setting into something like a therapeutic day school and vice versa? Like, are people typically, and I know this is a, there's a wide swath of people out there. Sure. Is that typically welcomed or is that something that you usually have to have? Is it usually a challenge? So frankly, I have learned through the years that it is often at first received in a very defensive mode Mm -hmm. because as if we're not doing a good job, therefore they want this child pulled. I'm try I try to be so careful to say that this is about what this child needs, mm-hmm. not what you are doing or not doing for the mm-hmm. child. It's it's about the embedding, the specialization that a private therapeutic day school can do. And that's why under IDEA we have that continuum of services right. that can go from complete gen ed to even residential for students Mm -hmm. who need it. But I will tell you that often it is uh, kind of looked at in a defensive mode. And then also it feels to families, Jessica, as if there's money involved because they know these schools cost money and Mm -hmm. they don't want to give it to us because it costs so much money. And, and I don't blame families for feeling mm. that way, but it's not coming out of the pockets of the people sitting in the room and it's right. not coming out of the salary. But often they're, they're, that's where they go to because they think, why else would they be fighting so hard against it? So I try as best I can to preempt by saying, this isn't about anybody in this room. This is about this particular mm. student's needs. But that can often be, a little bit of a battle. I think that's such a good point about each individual student. And I know, you know, when we've been in meetings together, one of the things that's very important for me to say is like all the teachers and the therapists and the people in the room, you're doing a great job. I think most of those people come to the table because they really care about students with disabilities and special education needs. They want to do a good job. They want to see the kids succeed. You know, I I don't know the behind the scenes in the school, but I I do wholeheartedly believe that the people sitting in the room who are on hands on with the kids really care. And so I think it's really important to say that in the podcast that when we're talking about the education system that we're going to talk about, we're talking about the system, we're talking about people making these big decisions and not about the people on the ground implementing them. Because I think, frankly some of those people are very frustrated as well. They want different for the kiddos. I just had a conversation last week with a woman similar, you know, she's a provider in the schools and she's very passionate about what she does and she's very frustrated with what she's seeing. So I think that we should just really call that out here too, that we appreciate all of you who are in the schools with our kids because we know it's a huge undertaking. I couldn't agree more. And it it's frustrating for me because sometimes I'll look around the table because again, this isn't 
where somebody gets all the vote. You know, we're supposed to come to consensus Together. and everyone is equal. And sometimes I look around and I say, really, is there anyone here that disagrees that this particular student needs more? And I see so many of those individuals that are working hard directly with that child kind of looking down, mm. not wanting to make eye contact. And I, it feels to me and to a parent that there's a hesitancy sometimes to speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I always feel bad about that. And I encourage everyone to speak up. But there is a little bit of that going on, which, again, becomes frustrating because sometimes parents are even told things behind the scenes Um, but maybe it's not said in a meeting and that's where we need to speak up. And I I feel like the teachers that are working so hard with the child every day should feel absolutely free to say, you know what, I do believe this child could benefit more from this type of a setting and not feel like that might uh, have a negative impact on them. On them. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of the, the big picture landscape of special education today. You know, I think that I, you know, the last three years have been rather challenging there. I know there's been lots of different things that have happened in, you know, in, in law and, and things through that. Yes. But just tell us like kind of what you're seeing today, what's the landscape of special education, maybe what are like one or two of the trends or challenges that you're kind of witnessing globally through the school systems that you're working with? Perfect. Well, I'll start with one big piece and it's literacy. Hmm. We really, you know, there's there's been so much going on really in the past uh, 10 years especially, but we really understand globally um, and this is something that's very passionate to me as a reading specialist as well, but we, we understand how children learn to read and they learn to read through that phonemic awareness mm-hmm. and not through guessing or looking at the pictures or those kinds of things you need. That's how the brain learns to read. And it's the science of reading. And finally, our school districts, some much more advanced than others, are understanding it, incorporating it, getting rid of some of the old curriculum that doesn't use that. Uh, the, the way we know now that after years of studies, how children really learn, you know, there's been trends. Uh, depending on your age, you learned phonics or you learned whole language or you learned this or you learned that. But we really know now this is science-backed. So that piece has become a hot button issue because as parents become more educated and aware and and the ability now to say the D word, dyslexia, in Mm -hmm. IEP meetings and identifying so many children with dyslexia that now schools are having parents come to them and say, hey, we know my child has dyslexia. We're able to say that in the Mm -hmm. IEP meeting. Now we also know what works. It's like this medicine works for this. There's no question about it. And they, they're demanding that as they mm-hmm. should. As they should. Um, and then the problem has, is becoming that in some districts, there's some pushback. Well, no, this is what we use. Well, if you're using that, I mean, you, you, know, you don't give this for this kind of a situation. This is the medicine mm-hmm. for this. Um, so that's a hot button issue. And 
we get so many calls with uh, this dyslexia piece and getting the right intervention. Now we have some great districts that have actually say, okay, we don't have the right trained people. They're actually hiring folks from our dyslexia center because that's mm -hmm. an offshoot now of what I have to actually, and the district is paying for these highly trained individuals to come in and push into the school and provide instruction. I herald that. Yeah, it's, that's awesome. Because that's what it should be. It's like, yeah. well, we don't have that here. But, you know, you can't say that to a parent. If you know your child needs social work, a school can't just say, sorry, we don't have a social worker. They've got to provide one, even if they have to pay for outside. But so there are some wonderful districts. That's a huge issue. That's a trend we're seeing. The other trend is, is an offshoot from the Andrew F. case, which was the Supreme Court case in 2016 that changed the landscape of special education. And that is the case where a family sued the school district because year after year after year, their child was not making progress. But the school said, well, he met his goals, he met his goals. Well, the problem was the goal wasn't the child's going to run a marathon, the child's going to walk 10 feet. Oh, guess what? He did it. And, you know, you're never going to get to the marathon. Right. So this case went all the way through the Supreme Court. And what it did is it changed the entire perspective that we must have ambitious goals. Mm. And those goals have to be in line with the unique profile of the child. They're unique. Mm. Not, well, here's what we do for our kids with autism. Here's what we do with our kids. That has been huge. The individualization, individualization of the goal and the rigor of the goal the Andrew F. standard. So when I see year after year, a family comes to me and this child, let's say it's a fluency goal for reading and they've gained two words in a year, that doesn't fit that standard anymore. And that's mm -hmm. the law of the land through the Supreme Court. I can use that now to help fight. And that I think has finally changed. The frustrating thing for me, Jessica, is sometimes when I mention Andrew F. in a meeting, I would have to say at least 75% of the folks in there don't know what that is. And that's not uh, on them. But right. where is the training from above? Because the people sitting at the table working with our children have to have some understanding of these legal obligations as well if they're in the special ed field. I think that's missing. And like, so, where would that come from in the school? Like if you're a speech therapist, how would you find out about that? Who's, well, who should do it, that? That's got to come from all of those um, learning opportunities. The, all those teacher institute days where they go to various different professional training. The professional training has to get increased. Now, mm -hmm. if your child has an IEP, there's an actual section in there. And those of you listening who have uh, children with IEPs, it's called supports for school personnel. I will tell you 90% of the ones I pick up, it'll say yes or no. And they say no. And I think, what do you mean? This child has autism. The, the people that work with this child, anybody from a paraprofessional to someone working in the lunchroom, it doesn't matter who it is needs to understand 
that this child's, for example, communication can be limited. So they can't be looked at as being non-compliant if they don't answer you. Everybody has to understand. So training in there is key. That's a key piece of that. But one other trend I do want to tell you that we're seeing is the abundance of our young um, adolescents uh, starting, I would say, by the age of 12, 13, with significant mental health needs. And this is really weighs on me. These are the, mm. some of the cases that I, I lose sleep over. Children mm. experiencing vulnerability and being the subject of perhaps someone with bad intentions, risky behaviors, et cetera. And then the mental health system not having enough supports or even beds. We could have a child, you know, God forbid, with a suicide uh, attempt but we can't find enough beds for the, you know, a bed for that child to be inpatient. This is not an exception. This is some of the things that are going on. And it has obviously, as we all know, really increased during COVID. Mm -hmm. So that those are some of the big pieces that we hear when we get our calls every day. So, I mean, just kind of pulling back to 30,000 feet, we're talking about, like, as a culture, we talk about how important our kids are and how important diversity is and how important, you know, inclusion is. And we have all Absolutely. these buzzwords that everyone likes to post about on Instagram or LinkedIn or what have you. But it's like, we're all talking a big game, but we have some serious things that we're not taking care of our children, which we say are like our greatest resource, our most important. Is there a disconnect between the reality of the needs and people in the ability to provide that, like in their values? Like where is the disconnect here? Well, I do see that disconnect. I think there's been an awareness, at least uh, uh, people posting about awareness yeah. of understanding and tolerating differences, mm -hmm. regardless of where that is. Yep. But I think our children with disabilities and their acceptance and tolerance from others is lagging behind Jessica. Yeah. I do. And even in the services provided, I feel that a lot of these children are getting left behind. And then what happens is I find that when they get to a certain age, there's kind of a push toward, well, let's put you in this program and you can learn to clean the break room at TJ Maxx or something. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, and I, and I hate to be, and I don't mean to be flippant, but seriously, I worry about that. Yeah, There's got to be more in terms of starting from an early age, that inclusion opportunities and meaningful ways in which we're preparing children for post-secondary, regardless of their disabilities, rather than kind of put a ceiling and funneling. We, we mm. can't do that. So I think our population with disabilities has been a little bit left behind in some of the push for tolerance from some of the other areas, and they're all important. They're all important, but I think some receive are like, I would say like trending, right? And some yeah. aren't. And I don't think that we can have 
in my opinion, I'll just say this is my opinion. I don't think we can have DEI without having including disability. You know, I we, agree. Can't, we can't give lip service to that without also. And so, you know, I'll ask you about that maybe in a little bit, but I just think that that's an important thing for people to realize that we have this world that is moving forward and all of these things, but there are people that are being left behind and that we do have to take the resources that we do have and the the knowledge that we do have, and we have to continue to improve for these kiddos. And so on that topic, I want to ask you about like the need for advocacy. It seems like you, you know, you say I get these calls, like has the need increased over the last few years? What are you seeing with that? It has, it is unbelievable. I mean, I'll just give you an example with our firm. I think last week we received over 40 calls from new clients. Oh my gosh. You know, new clients that and they're they all have a need. Like I have a meeting next week and I realize I can't do this alone. I need your help. Or my child just got out of an inpatient program. Can you help me figure out where's the best therapeutic school or or things like that. These aren't things that we and we we get people in. We do these 30 minute free consults for anybody. And we understand the need. We're not like some um, professionals that can just say, well, there's a six-month waiting list of what you put on. Mm -hmm. Because we understand with advocacy, you know, there's timelines, there's a need. So we really do our best to get everybody in. But the increase, and I I attribute it to two things. The lack of staff, um, because, you know, COVID also changed the landscape of people rethinking their jobs and careers, et cetera. And we lost a lot of the uh, workforce in education, both in higher levels as well as in our paraprofessional support. And there there are very important people. So we've lost a lot. And um, therefore, services have suffered. But I also think parents are becoming more aware. There's groups of, uh, you know, uh, families that get on and social media and say, I'm having trouble with this. And, you know, that your community can be so important. And some of my colleagues will call and tease me and say, I was on a, some of my younger moms that are also colleagues and they'll say, I was on a parent site and somebody said, oh my gosh, I'm struggling with this. And then someone Oh, you got to call Carol Demas and somebody else said, oh, yeah, she's a bulldog. So she said, I just want to tell you, I watched a whole stream. of. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, but I think that parents are becoming a little bit more aware. Some families are. And then then obviously with some of the changes in staff. But I will tell you, though, Jessica, there is a huge gap in our more underserved communities, our communities where English is not a first language. And that that has me extremely concerned. Yeah. Well, and I think what happens in, in, in those communities is that if the parents don't know their rights and then they can't advocate for their rights because they don't have either the ability to communicate or have the education or whatever, then their kids are just going to fall behind. And so kind of on that topic... Well, first of all, I want to ask you, do school systems see advocates like you as um, a help to the system? Like you're there to make them better? I mean, I know the answer to this question, but I got to ask it. Or do they see it as adversarial like most of the time? 
So I wish it was uh, seen as that. And in the few cases, sometimes I'll get an email from uh, a professional, a staff member that was in an IEP meeting with me. And that individual will say, I just wanted to tell you, I appreciate I learned so much from you or something like that. And that's just, oh, it just, I just love those. But uh, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think that when my name comes across or one of my colleagues, no, I don't think anyone's throwing a parade because, (laughs) and, and it's, and it's sad. And so, you know, you've been with me a long time, but every time I first come and sit with a family, I always say, I'm not here in any adversarial capacity. Because, and I, th- I believe this to my core. If we can work together, the child wins. So yeah. that is going to be my goal. But if I know my family's rights have been violated and they're really continuing to be or someone is giving them information at the table that is absolutely not in line with the law, I have to fight. I have to be a bulldog for them. They've hired me to fight for them. I try to do that um, in the most respectful way possible and not targeting individuals because it's about a, more about sometimes a system. But I am telling you, I don't think anybody is, is excited to see my name, but every once in a while I do. And there are some school districts that I, and you know, they're the least amount of clients we have because they mm-hmm. are kind of doing, but they're so child focused and when I do get a call for one of those, I, it's like, oh, this is going to be the best meeting yeah. because they listen and they work together and they'll say, that makes good sense. I think we can do that. And it just feels so right. Um, and and that's a question I get over and over. Why does it have to be so yes. hard? That's my next question. Why is there such a gap? What is, uh, where does that come from? So I... I really think I absolutely know the answer to this question. It comes from the top. And so when you look at who's running those departments, you know, figure out who those folks are. What's their background? What's their track record? You know, as families, you can FOIA a lot of things. Like how Mm -hmm. many families have had to file due process in this district? What years? You know, there's a lot of information you can find out. But when it's funneled from the top or the professional development is seems to be only led by the attorney for the school district, that's not a good sign because that's more about defending yourself or defending decisions rather than here's the new trends and here's what we can do. Um, So, yeah, I think that um, people sitting at the table, the ones that are in there working with our children diligently are are often sent a, a message that, well, this is how we're going to decide on this case. And don't you agree? Mm-hmm. It's just put in a position. So I'll give you a real life example. I sat at a meeting, the executive director was there um, and somebody that I've worked very well with through the years this was a little bit of contentious because of the parent requesting a certain thing for this child. And when it came down to it and I, and we made that request, the executive director made a statement. Well, we believe this, 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 and that. 
And so no one else spoke up. So then I said, you know, it's a shame that we didn't hear from, for example, the case manager or this person. And then the director said, well, of course, uh, anyone has the right to speak up. And I said, well, you've already made the statement. That's going to be tough for them. And yeah. I, it was an honest thing. You know, I'm yeah. not sure it was well received. So it, it, it does feel people say, is it money? And I, you know, it, it's not, here's where, here's how it's money. The funds are come down, preponderance of funds come down for the federal government, but it's the way the district chooses to use that funds. And I think that's why money can be a factor. So that's actually one of my questions about how, so I'm seeing if we can make this like really simple. Like if you have, if the federal government gives, let's say $10,000, I don't know what the numbers are for a, a child in a district and the, the district's only going to receive those funds because of that child's IEP. Is that correct? And because yes. of their, yeah. of their, of their diagnoses or their special education needs, otherwise they wouldn't have the money. Is that true? Correct. Okay. You receive money when you when you have a child who has become eligible. Let's talk about IDEA because that's yeah. where direct. So you have a child who's become eligible, then funding is there under IDEA for the services, the OT, the PT, whatever, for that individual child. There's funding that comes down. But how that district utilizes staff, and utilizes the funding. I mean, it has to be used for the child, but it the federal government isn't dictating this much for this, this much for this. And how a school district uses their special education funding can differ quite a bit. For example, they may say, all our teachers, special ed teachers do this. And then I have to come in and say, this is an individualized plan. So there's no such thing as, but I fight against some of that. So that's where the issue comes in. So is it fair to say that there is enough money, but it's often how it's allocated? Because I think the message yes. that parents get is that every no one has any money and the schools are all broke and we're asking for things no. that no one can afford. Is that true? No, that is not true. Decisions for children. For example, think about how much money it would cost to have a full-time nurse, RN, for a child with a significant health issue to be in school every day. But you know what? Because that child requires that to get that faith that we talked about at the mm -hmm. beginning, I got that for that child. So every day an RN is with that child from the time they get on the school bus to the time they get back to their door. There's nobody that could say, well, we don't have the money. Now, when the parent first called, they were actually told, I don't know if we can educate your child. And of course, that was walked back the minute my name came across their desk as the advocate. But remember, every child has a right to faith. And that child has to be able to be educated. That's their legal right, their inherent right as a citizen in this country. So you know what? That RN had to be hired. Well, where does that money come from? That money has to be uh, allocated for that child to receive faith. So it's not about there isn't enough money. It's about the how it's how it 
the school district is utilizing that. Now, staffing, yeah, that's a problem. And that has been a problem. And there isn't enough staffing, but then we've got to find a way. Again, we have to be careful that parents aren't hearing, I'm sorry, your child has a one-to-one aid on here, but we don't have an aid because we can't hire someone. So your child can't come to school. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really think about it too, not only do we have to be investing in, for example, the equipment that they need at school or the RN that you recommended, but we should be investing in the staff and in their, in their education and their continuing education and their pay, frankly. I mean, well, I'll say we pay our parents deplorably. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's absolutely disgusting. Horrible. These are men and women and people who are like teachers. I mean, frankly, like they are an integral part of our child's education because they're the one-to-one. Absolutely. It's like, you know, and for me, this is what I think I go back. It's like, what do we value as a, as a culture? And we, and unfortunately I will say we don't value the disabled, if the football team needed a brand new something or other because it was going to make money for the school and they were going to win the district championship, we would hop to that in like 30 seconds. But no kidding. In a wheelchair or it's a teacher that's teaching the kids with autism, like we're not going to invest in them. So it really goes back to what we value and what school systems value. And the thing that kills me and that my husband and I always say to people is like, don't you want to be a best practice? Don't you want to be a district that stands up and says, we're doing a great job. Like this is how it should be done. And perhaps you could fundraise around that. You could create something better, but instead. I know. I've heard you say that at the table. Yeah, Absolutely. Systems where it's like, we just want to keep everybody out. And that isn't good. Like if you just want to talk about healthy energy, that's not good for the families. That's not good for the staff. That's not good for the parents. Like we, I just don't understand why we can't work together. And I think, you know, when we were talking about this, Eric and I, this, this conversation, he's like, it just goes even to like going to IEP meeting for the first time, sitting at that long table as two parents with like 25 people and they all go around the room and say all the things your kid's not doing. It's over. Uh, it's very intimidating. And so it's like down to that part of the system, it's intimidating. And I just, you know, wonder, and and I know it's such a big question, but what can we do about this? Like, how are we going to change this? Well, one of the things, I mean, that, and, and, you know, when I'm, when I become overwhelmed that I do with the amount of calls and the amount of heartbreak that I hear from families, it it really can affect you. And so I always, say, all right, well, as advocates, we're one, one child at a time. If, if I've had three meetings today and, you know, I fought hard for those three children, I can, you know, put my Mm -hmm. head on my pillow at night, but I'll use my analogy here for families. It feels, I call it the secret menu. It feels Mm -hmm. like you go to a restaurant and somebody, you sit down and they hand you a cheeseburger and they hope, you're satisfied and you go away happy and you don't know that there's a whole menu of things Mm -hmm. that you could have access to. But here's the disconnect. If as a family, you don't know your rights, then you don't know what to ask for. You don't know what's on the menu. So you're, you eat the cheeseburger. But the point is 
empowering parents. And it's so much a part of what I try to do, Jessica, is empower parents. So I tell them, send your parent concerns ahead of time. Take notes, bring somebody with you. Never go to an IEP uh, alone. If you can possibly bring somebody, have that person take notes. Um, ask to record the meeting. Um, and, and I know some school districts feel that's very adversarial, but it's not. You can just say, mm -hmm. I can't participate and record it, you know, type yeah, everything at once. Taken. Take the notes and stop and ask questions rather than just have it go through and don't ever let someone read to you. Make sure you have the paperwork, ask for it to be projected, have the draft in front of you. I mean, there's a legal requirement in the state of Illinois that three days ahead, you have to be given drafts, but still sometimes we're at a meeting and someone says, well, I changed my goal. Here's my new goal. Do you like it? And I always say, excuse me, can you give the parent a copy of that goal? Can you project it? Mm -hmm. uh, we don't do well with just listening to it. So I try with each family or if I do speaking engagements, but Jessica, that's the key. If parents can become more empowered and really the squeaky wheel, mm -hmm. then I think schools will step up if our if our parents are educated. And I really wish schools would do more in terms of telling parents about their rights. They hand you procedural safeguards because it's a legal requirement. But if I'll ask you as, as a parent, Jessica, has anyone ever sat down and gone through that with you in a school? No. No. And you've been given those from the time you, Bodie was a baby yep. and he started getting services. Yep. No. No. One time at a meeting on the East Coast in our DC office, I went to a meeting and the um, special ed director said, I know you have Carol, but it's also my job and mm -hmm. I'm going to go through this with you. I was so impressed and so <laughs> happy. I wanted to hug that individual because you know what? That that was really the right thing to do. Yeah. I took it. I took it wonderfully. It wasn't disrespectful mm -hmm. to me. It was mm -hmm. wonderful for the family because I know if I'm not there, someone's going to do that. But that is an exception. Hmm. It's all like we have these great laws. We have ADA, we have IDEA that people yes. have thought a lot about and put a lot of, you know, when you go online and you look up IDEA and you read about it, you're like, this sounds great. Right. Right. You know, you're like, okay, we're on top of this. This is, this is wonderful. Th the problem is, is that there's a disconnect between the laws of the land that we have, that we have agreed upon in our legislatures and the practice of them in the schools. And so, you know, one of the moms asked me, she said, you know, if, and this is a pretty like bold question, but this is what she said. She said, you know, if someone is breaking the law in your community in somewhere, and you know that they are, we would say that's terrible. And then there would be consequences and then change would happen. But instead right. in the schools that is happening and there aren't consequences. And unless the parents figure it out, nothing changes and people get away with it and they continue to get paychecks. And that's, exactly. I mean, it's disgusting. And it's something that I won't stand for because, and I always no. say this, my son is not special. 
because I can advocate for him. What he deserves, every child deserves. Like, like there is like we need to that, and I think that's another thing as parents. Like, if we banded together on and said, "My kid," I mean, my kid's not special. He has special, specific needs, but him getting those needs fulfilled is not should not be just because. I, Jessica, am his mom and I'm willing to go to a meeting and say things that people don't want to hear. It's something that every child in his classroom or the other classroom or any classroom should receive. And I think Absolutely. that's the message that is missing. We, it's like we all go behind closed doors and shut the doors and, you know, close the blinds and talk about it. We need to be more open about this so that we can take care of our children together. Oh, you're, you're exactly right. And it, it it's not about... Uh, that if this child has these needs, he gets more attention or more. It's not about that. Every child that's eligible, those laws protect whether your child has a math disability or significant intellectual disability, it doesn't matter. So that is important to say. And the power of parents banding together is something I'm glad you brought up. It is, I I really encourage families if they've had a bad experience and or there's been clear cut violations, make sure you do more than just say it in a meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, send a letter. There's there's avenues with through our states. Educator misconduct. If truly your child's been mistreated by an individual, uh, the uh, state complaints, you can file that Me- mediation. And none of these are actually due process. These are things that are are rights. But if more of that is done, all of a sudden, the state board of education takes notice and say, Mm -hmm. wow, we've had 25 complaints from this school district. Hmm. Does this deserve another lens, another level of scrutiny here? What's going on here? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why a one of the bigger cities uh, in this country actually got their special ed uh, implementation rights taken away. Like the state came in because they were doing such a poor job. So yeah, being the squeaky wheel is important uh, and parents banding together to make change is crucial. Cause again, I see what you're saying. You're highly educated. Your husband's an attorney. You have the means to hire an advocate and but you feel that inequity about other families that don't and right. it shouldn't be that way everyone should be treated the same but it it doesn't occur that way so i wanted to ask you just you know a couple more tips for parents and advocacy i mean you mentioned a few things that you suggested people do and i think for a lot of people they're kind of afraid to say something or to speak up because it's very intimidating um, sure. And, you know, people have different personalities, but what, you know, is like a little bit of encouragement that you could give to a family who might be listening, who's like, Ooh, I've never had to do this before. And I can't believe my school is system is doing this. I thought they were supposed to take care of my children. Like what, what encouragement can you give them to say, no, it's okay to speak up. It's okay to say something. It is. And I will tell you that I have found that parents that do speak up um, are all of a sudden they it's not that they're looked at necessarily in a negative light. I also see that 
the level of respect for that family increases when that family starts to do those mm. things. Uh, the things I always say, send parent concerns ahead of time, because in the meeting, it's hard to sit there and talk about your child. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very difficult. It's emotional. Send it ahead and ask it to be put into the IEP, your digital copy of that, so that someone isn't taking notes about your words. Because the parent mm -hmm. concerns in an IEP, it's the actual uh, section of the document that's important. So that is your chance to get all of those. And then at the end of the meeting, circle back. Did we address all these parent concerns? Secondly, don't ever talk on the phone to anyone in school about your child, you know, other than can you go on the field trip? But I'm yeah. talking about in terms of needs, because if it doesn't happen in writing or in an IEP meeting, then we have no accountability. So I'm not saying people are trying to get away with things, but I will tell you, I almost chuckle because someone will hire me and I send my letter of retainment and I say, mm -hmm. I've been retained by the family, looking forward to working with you. Inevitably, that family gets a call from mm -hmm. somebody calls mm -hmm. from the principal or the special teacher, Mrs. So-and-so, do you have a problem? You don't need to hire an advocate. You know, so I say, don't talk on the phone. And it's just, again, you're protecting your child. You're not trying to be adversarial. You're protecting your child. The other thing, don't sign a blanket release, especially for if your child has either medical or mental health issues, that the school can talk to anyone else just on their own. Any release that you want to share information with your private people, always say, on the release with one or more parent uh, in attendance. So if there's a call, you have to be on the call because I have sat in meetings where, for example, a social worker has said, well, I talked to your child's uh, psychologist and your child's psychologist agrees with me. Mm. Well, what? You have no recourse. You weren't even on that call, but you know, that's not quite the way it was, mm -hmm. should have been presented. So uh, protection. These are just good protections, but it elevates you mm -hmm. as a parent that you, you're really a strong advocate. Um, you know, things that might seem trivial are not, if you're your first IEP meeting, you're sitting in that room with all those people, especially those domain meetings, put a picture in the front. Cause mm -hmm. I guarantee that OT had never seen your kid or the psychologist mm -hmm. put a picture of your child. Speak from a parent's point of view and don't let anyone ever say to you, well, I'm so sorry that happens at home, but we don't see that here. Those are words for me that are like fingers on a chalkboard for someone to disregard a parent. Cause I always say the parents are the expert on the child. Mm -hmm. They need to be respected more than anything. And you need to know as a parent that the, the law doesn't regard, even if the superintendent is sitting in there, that individual isn't regarded higher than you. And I don't know that parents feel that way. I don't They're think not made to that. feel that. And I don't, I don't think they know it. They think it's a hierarchy. It's not. You are equal in the IEP meeting. The only problem is when we come down to decisions about placement or things like that, if we don't have consensus, then 
the school district can then say, well, our decision is going to be the one. However, getting consensus, you know what? If you have a big decision, bring grandma, bring grandpa, bring an aunt and uncle, you know, stack the room because Mm -hmm. it's about consensus. Mm -hmm. So those are some tips that I give to parents uh, that can help a parent who maybe doesn't have an advocate, but to elevate themselves. Those are such good things. So, you know, you go through that process with, with, with the IEP and they offer you something. And yeah, I know you talked a little bit about consensus, but if there's something that you're offered that you don't like or that you want to do differently, you, you mentioned that parents are equals. So we can say that is not something that I think is going to work or I'd like to do something different. We're allowed to ask for something different. Is that correct? Absolutely. Because remember the decision. So using the word offered, that's how it feels. Well, so we, we think that your child will do well in this classroom, but every decision has to be made on data. So as a parent, if you're not going to agree with that, start with where's the data that shows that. So start Mm -hmm. with that because then you might be throwing people off because it might've been predetermined already. Um, So ask for the data. And then remind everyone, we have to make decisions based on data. So in the present levels, everyone said, when all the teachers gave their reports, they said, he's so well behaved, he's doing so well. But now you're telling me you want him in a classroom for kids with behavioral problems? Mm. That doesn't, you know, work. So don't, it's not about, well, my opinion is this about, based on my son's needs or my daughter's needs, they require this. So I always tell parents, don't say, I would like him to be in this. I would like him to have this. You want to state he requires this piece of equipment in order to access his education. He requires to be with his typical peers so he can build his communication skills. You want to put him in a class with other children who are nonverbal, but that's not going to help him with communication models. So use the word require. Now, if it comes down to, well, we have a disagreement here, Mrs. Demas, because we believe that the data shows this, then you need to state and make sure it's in the notes. We are not in agreement. We do not have consensus. Let's assume there's more of them than you, you mm-hmm. uh, parents, whatever. And so you're not going to come to agreement there. So then you say, we do not agree. You follow it with a letter of dissent saying we do not agree. And the data does not support this based on this, 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 and that. And then use some of the means um, that the state gives us. Try first early resolution, which means meet with some of the higher ups and say, you know what, mm-hmm. I don't, I believe this meeting was predetermined or this or that. We need to look at this more. Sometimes they're willing to do that because they might realize that, yeah, this didn't go as it should have. And rather than having this family sue us, let's see if we can fix it. Mm-hmm. You could try mediation from the state. That's free to families. Um, and the mediators are great. They're so objective. And they work hard to come to consensus. Um, You can write a state complaint if you absolutely feel that your voice wasn't heard. The law protects a 
family's right to meaningful participation. So you cannot sit there and be passive and let everybody else talk about your child and say, here's what we designed for them. Because then that's, you know, violating your right. It's not empowering. So I think the message that if you're listening is to advocate for your child that you do have a lot of rights, that the law is designed to protect you as parents. And that even if someone doesn't tell you that, it's actually true. And you just have to keep taking a step and then a step. I was, you know, there was a recent Supreme Court case, uh, Perez versus Sturgis Public Schools. And oh, yeah. Look it up if you want. I can put it in the show notes. But what I noticed and thought about is that was a long fight. The family oh. kept fighting. And this was over access to education for those of you listening, um, for a student having access. And they were denied. I mean, I think in different courts and they just kept going. And it kind of gave me the chills when I read about it, because I thought to myself, how many times you go to a meeting and you you get to your car and you feel like you've just been a punching bag and you're like, I'm giving up this fight. It's not even worth it. Nobody cares. I'm just going to, but it's like these people modeled what happens when you continue to advocate for your child. And years later, like they won in the Supreme court and it was a, a unanimous um, ruling. So I just think it's a good message to all of us as parents to continue to love your kids, to know your rights and to fight for them. Yes. And if I might add with that Perez case, it was such an amazing case for us as well is because it's the first time that now we are saying to parents, even if your child is protected under ADA, um, that families can sit still, sue the school district um, if that child has not been provided faith. So this is going to open the floodgates for ADA lawsuits. But it's so important because our families often, and not only does it help them to get what their child needs, but they can actually claim for damages. And that has not happened before. So under typically if a Uh, a section 504 was being violated. Let's say you have a child with a 504 plan and they were supposed to get certain accommodations and the school didn't provide them. That would be done through the OCR, Office of Civil Rights kind of overseas. But now our courts are open to even ADA lawsuits as well for Mm -hmm. access. So another good case, this and the Andrew F case that I talked about before, just huge wins for families. Mm -hmm. But, um, I really do, you know, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming with the amount of uh, families that aren't getting what they need for kids. But at the same time, the more we um, bring these uh, cases and we talk about them, we talk about them with families and we, and like your podcast is such an amazing thing. This is what really does not only give information, but empowers families to say, you know what? Mm-hmm. Yes, my child deserves it. I'm going to go in there and fight. And I'm not going to worry that all of a sudden, you know, I actually have people say, if I disagree with the school, will they take it out on my child? Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid, this is not a bullying situation. And if mm-hmm. anything like that ever happened, it the OCR 
is the, they would be the ones to contact immediately because that falls under retaliation, which is taken very seriously. And I tell parents, never, don't ever let the fear of mm. your child being mistreated because you've come in and disagreed. Just do it respectfully, but you can fight as hard as you need to for your child because you are their main advocate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this increase in need for advocacy. And obviously, like, this is time and money. And one of my big beefs is the fact that if we're in a public school system and we're taxpayers, and you've heard me say this in meetings, and I'll just say it here. Yeah. And then we expect the law to be followed and our kids to get what they need, but then we have to hire advocates. So we're paying taxes and we're paying for advocates, which I think is another like wild violation of all kinds of things from ethics to the law to other things. And um, that I feel extremely strong about um, and no one has agreed with me except for people like you. Um, <laughs> but it, the reality is, is that it's expensive for people. And the total yeah. part of this, frankly, is that it becomes an option for people that can afford it. And so you yeah. recently created the Stephen Dimas Family Scholarship edu for Educational Advocacy. And I think it's awesome. So I wanted you to Thank talk you. about that a little bit and talk about Stephen and your husband and your family um, and why this is so important, because I know yeah. as many people to have access to advocacy as possible. Well, thank you. Yes. And so this is something that has always weighed heavily on me about all the families that can't afford advocacy mm -hmm. and aren't getting that. And, and so when I go in and I'm able to change really the trajectory of a child's life because getting them the right, but then I think, what about those, all mm -hmm. those other students that don't have this available? Mm -hmm. And my late husband who um, uh, died from cancer was a huge proponent in helping me start my business. He was an entrepreneur, but he was also an educator at uh, Northwestern University, taught at the middle school, at the uh, medical school, excuse me. And he really um, helped me so much and was the biggest proponent. Um, he used to make, when I'd leave for a meeting, he'd say, do you have a tough one today? Yeah. I'd say, yeah. And he'd do the Wonder Woman sign <laughs> to me, like, you you got I this. You know? Yeah. Cool. So, um, so as the 10 year anniversary of his mm -hmm. passing, came to be, um, I sat my uh, children down, my adult children and said, I want to do something to really honor your father. And so here's what I was mm -hmm. thinking of establishing this foundation, and actually uh, providing monies to families who are um, uh, in underserved communities or um, in that poverty range, mm -hmm. who could never afford this, but have a child with a disability that needs help. So we uh, started this foundation and we, um, we have raised enough money that right now we have eight families that have received wow. scholarships and w are getting help that they would have never gotten. And it's making me so excited. And we've been getting more and more mm. applications and I encourage anyone to, to apply um, but it is based on need, needs of the child, needs of the family. We use kind of the uh, standards of what's considered poverty, but we take a lot into consideration yeah. because we can have a family that, you know, they're making a, a good salary. However, they have 
multiple children with disabilities or other others, you know, expenses, mm -hmm. medical needs or things. So still it would be a hardship. So it's yeah. not like there's a cut point and I want right. families to know that, but, um, but it's been um, just so rewarding um, to um, help these families. And I'm so proud of this foundation and I'm so grateful for all the wonderful donations that we've received. So um, I, I feel good about it. We're going to continue. And um, there's an application for it. It's the Stephen Demas Foundation, uh, dot com, And there's a um, uh, application. And we have certain times of the year that we're, you know, doing mm -hmm. these, but we've been able to uh, make a difference already. That's and awesome. uh, we thought we might do a couple of families. It hasn't even been a year. And uh, we've been able to provide eight scholarships for advocacy wow. fees. So, yeah. And the cool thing about that is that there are probably maybe schools or school districts that typically wouldn't have advocates. So You're right. hopefully there's a ripple effect happening, right? So you get in there with one yeah. kid and the ripple effect is that other children in the classroom or in the program also people, maybe their eyes open a little bit and then they, they provide it for other kids, I hope. Jessica, you are so right. I mean... One of the families that received the scholarship is in a, a more of a rural area. They told me they'd never had an advocate. I walked up to the school, which was kind of in the middle of a cornfield, and the mm -hmm. actual superintendent of the school, uh, of the school district, but it's such a small district, was, was at the meeting, and he said, so you're an advocate. What does an advocate do? <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy. Oh, no. But anyway... It, it uh, actually turned out pretty favorably that's for that awesome. uh, child. Yeah. But it's been, uh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. That's awesome. So thank you. Thank you for bringing it yeah, up. We'll link that in the show notes too. So thank people you. can take a look at that and donate if thank you feel you. like, because it's, I mean, I will tell you personally, it's an incredible cause and it's an important cause. And I think it's a way if you're a parent listening who has typical healthy children who have never had to deal with this, yeah. you're so, you should be so thankful for it. But there are so many families that do them. That would be a way that you could support families who are, you. you know, trying to do their best for their kids. And also it's a way that you can support your community to make to elevate right. schools. So I think every yeah. time we get an advocate into schools, again, this is a belief that I have. I actually see it as, as I know people don't, the, the people in the room don't often see it this way, but I see it as my gift to my community because I'm asking them to elevate their program, not only for my son, but for people, other children in the community. Right. So I think and you've seen that. You've seen yeah. that happen, Jessica. Yeah. You have. You to raise the bar, and so yeah. um, supporting the the Stephen Dimas Family Scholarship would be a way to do Thank that. You. So before Thank we you. close, I have two more things for you. You know, what gives you hope, Carol? Like this is a tough go. There are, you know, I mean, you could do this for the next hundred years, and God, I hope it continues to improve. <laughs> but just, I mean, what personally gives you hope, and in a sense that you know, you can continue? I think the idea that, first of all, I also sat as a parent in an IEP uh, meetings for one of my children. So I, I saw myself, the, the way you can strongly advocate mm -hmm. can, can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that for all the, the, pushback and the gatekeepers and the fight, there are also all of these incredibly grateful students. And if I may share a story that yeah. I think 
personifies what gives me hope. I got an email from a, a, a college student and this college student was someone that I advocated for oh. when he was just going from middle school to high school. And he sent me an email and he said, I remember how hard you fought for me. Mm. And I would, I mean, it, it makes me choke up. Sure. And I would like to go into your field. Oh my gosh. So he had, he came and met with me and um, he asked me where to get started. Wow. And so I told him which books to read and kind of some stuff. And then I've been uh, zooming with uh, him to kind of talk about things. Wow. And he's actually going to be doing some interning for me this summer. Oh, so the full so circle moment for me yeah. that it's like, wow, that resonated with him. And he even used the term in his email. I remember you kicked butt. And I just <laughs> love that. I love it. But he, that's cool. he wants to do that. Yeah. And so I think that's what gives me hope. Oh, that's an awesome story. So Thanks. I'm asking all of my guests this question as we as we close the podcast. So the season on the on the Heartstrong podcast, I'm focusing on who we become as people and what we create in this world from the heartbreak that we witness around us and the adversities that we face as humans. And so I'm wondering, Carol, like, what do you like about yourself? What do you like about Carol because of the challenges that you face, that you've got something that you're like, this is a beautiful thing that has come out of my life challenge? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, becoming a widow um, when I did um, mm -hmm. certainly was uh such a heartbreak for yeah. me. Um, and, but I, it, in, you know, when my husband was very ill, I said, I just need to step away from my advocacy work right now. I really mm -hmm. do. And he said, I, I need you not to do that. I, I, this is something that is ingrained in you now and mm -hmm. you do so much good. Please don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was a gift he gave me because I kept going. Obviously, it took a few months off after he passed, but I kept going. And afterwards, to help me with the to heal and the mm -hmm. loneliness was really throwing myself into my work mm -hmm. and always my family, but my work. And I think it helped me to become as successful as I am mm -hmm. in my advocacy firm and grow it mm -hmm. and help more families. So out of that heartbreak, I think I became extremely hardworking, focused and dedicated. And I know my passions and I'm not afraid to go the length. And I like that about myself. Mm -hmm. I've been to Congress twice um, because of um, how passionate I am to stop physical restraint and isolation for students, those mm -hmm. horrible timeout rooms and that mm -hmm. stuff. I know my focus and I think throwing myself into my work and staying focused and knowing that for every meeting I have that I feel beaten down because I don't get anywhere, I'll have two or three that are great wins that can change the mm -hmm. trajectory of a child's life. And if I can do that, um, then 
all the hard work and the disappointment, I can deal with that. And I, I like that about myself. And also that, you know, a lot of people at my age are like, you know, retiring and mm-hmm. I don't want to retire yet because I still feel started. like I have more, more to do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to keep going. Keep going. Until, yeah. Yeah. I love that. So. Well, Carol, you are making a difference in so many families' lives. I mean, this is like a borderline ministry sometimes, I think, what you're doing. And <laughs> it's so needed in this world. And you've made such a difference in our family. And I am so thankful for you personally, but I thank know the world you. is a better place because you're here. So thank you for being thank here. You. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me here on the HeartStrong Podcast. Please rate and review this podcast and share an episode that you love with a friend. Because when you do, you help us grow our mission of encouraging people to grow through the challenges of their lives and to live their full potential. We'll see you next time.